Welcome to this bonus mini episode of the podcast Transformations. My name is Nick Bank and I'm your host. Today I'll be interviewing the authors of the new exciting book Hidden Challenges, Human Dynamics in Organizational Change and Recovery. In this five episode mini series, I will interview each of the chapter authors in turn. On this second episode, I discuss the importance of the stories we tell in organizations and how they define our self-understanding, as well as our experiences by introducing key concepts such as nostalgia to help us broaden our understanding of the subject. I have provided a link to the book on Amazon and also to James's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Now, on to the interview. Good morning, James. Thank you for calling in today. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you for uh, having me. Great. And James, where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm calling from New York City, which uh, where I've lived for about the past 35 years. You know, James, I'm calling in from uh, from Copenhagen, and uh, you and I, we know each other through the uh, INSEAD network. But uh, for those that don't know you, how would you introduce yourself? I grew up in a, a large family in a small town in uh, Minnesota, which is uh, one of the states in the upper Midwest of the U.S. Did eventually make my way to New York City and and study law, and uh, then ended up uh, working at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where I've been now for uh, oh, I guess I'm in my 31st year, I'll say. Um, and much of that time, I was actually in in-house attorney. And then, and then part of it, the second half has been more in the area of bank supervision. But over the past eight years, uh, I've led something called the uh, New York Fed Governance and Culture Reform Initiative, um, and that aims to uh, reduce misconduct in banking and try to increase public trust in the financial sector in general. And really, it was through leading that initiative and then later my INSEAD studies that I concluded that the diagnosis and remediation of culture problems within organizations um, often ignores the very important underlying feelings that drive human behaviors. And uh, so kind of to uh, highlight the importance of those feelings, my chapter of the, of the book attempts to draw a portrait of the collective emotions of my own organization uh, during the beginning of a period of profound change uh, around 2018, 2019, uh, uh, right before the pandemic, really. It was fascinating to read your chapter and, and, and the title, Reimagining Organizations, The Stories We Tell. I was wondering from your perspective, why do we need uh, this chapter at, and maybe even at this particular time? Well, um, I think probably an important message of the book and um, and my chapter uh, is that no one shuts off their feelings when they walk through the office door, whether it's real or virtual. Um, but I think in the case, particularly of of leaders and managers, uh, that that notion would not be a starting point for how they lead other people. Uh, and so I think it's important to uh, to take account of that. And um, I think my chapter, like uh, the other 
chapters in the book, really gives a very rich sense of the wide range and great depths of emotions in the workplace. When I was reading the chapter, I made sort of a an, an introductory note, and, and it's not to be cheeky in any way, but were things really better in the old days? Um, gosh, it's an interesting question. They were, they were different. I can certainly say that. (laughs) And, you know, I, I suppose as somebody who's been there for a long, long time, I, even I am nostalgic fundamentally for the old days. Um, it was an interesting process in the creation of the, of the, of the study, because I had to really try to suspend my own nostalgic feelings and be able to hear particularly the nostalgic feelings of others. And, uh, that was, that was a interesting exercise. The chapter, as you wrote it, who is it for specifically? Who's it aimed at? I think it's really aimed at organizational leaders. You know, one thing I did after, after I completed the chapter is that I, I went back and I shared it individually and had discussions with about 40 different people. Um, many of whom had participated in the study, many another bunch who had not to, you know, to sort of see, was this of any meaning, meaning what I've, I've found. And, um, it, it really, I think people, I think it's fair to say everybody sort of recognized themselves in the study, whether they participated or not, and the set of feelings. And I think the study ended up kind of putting into words a lot of what people sensed, but had never articulated to themselves. Um, and in some cases are kind of revelatory ways. One, one person read it and said, Jim, I'm a ghost, which is one of the typologies that I kind of discovered and and we'll, we'll get to, I'm sure. And then another guy, um, the end of our conversation, he just started crying because he was so sad and nostalgic about the, the, the way the organization had been and the changes it was undergoing. Okay, let's try to uh, to set the scene here, and you you introduce some uh, some key concepts, some of which are known, you know, in in maybe in other terms, and some of some of which were new at least to me. So let's yeah. start off with 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 your definition of of an organization. It's a little bit different than, should we say, quote unquote, the textbook version, which is a group of two or more individuals, and the coordinated allocation of resources around a common goal or objective. You have a bit of a different perspective on the organization. Tell me a, bit, a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't think the textbook definition is incorrect at all. And sort of as a start, um, I sort of take that as a given. Um, my own interest, uh, as I've said, was in kind of the collective emotions that, that occur within a group. Um, and in my case, uh, we're talking about an organization that is more than a hundred years old. Um, so it is full of, of, of stories and lore, um, and, and some projections into the future. And, um, you know, again, while we, we don't think of organizations as, you know, typically in these terms, 
they really are generators and repositories of, of great remembrance and longing. And we reveal those, I think, most easily through the telling of stories within, within the organization. And that's, that's really what got me going was an interest in stories and storytelling. Then you introduce the concepts of not only nostalgia, which I think is, is known and familiar to most, but also of nostalgia. Can you tell me more about the two concepts and how they're similar, how they're different? And maybe also what functions they fulfill for the individual and maybe also for the organization as a whole. Sure. So, um, yeah, nostalgia, people aren't familiar with it. It's a word that's been around uh, for centuries. Um, it was, it was first coined, uh, to capture the feelings of Swiss soldiers who were abroad fighting wars for a long time. And it, they had a kind of homesickness and somebody named it nostalgia. Um, but, and it's, so nostalgia is typically defined as a kind of a bittersweet longing for things from the past. Um, it's a feeling that exists in almost every, any organization, uh, maybe not the newest of organizations, but, um, and it, it's opposite is, is a word called postalgia. And that is a yearning for a bright future. And that is obviously very evident in organizations as they, as they discard the past and try to move and adapt with changing circumstances. Um, one very interesting uh, quality here is that, uh, so you think that nostalgia and nostalgia are about the past or the future, but they are both, in fact, um, responses to dissatisfactions with the present. And that's... And that's the kind of informational value of them. Um, and I guess you know, there's a lot of more I could say about nostalgia. Uh, I think it, nostalgia can have positive and negative effects. Um, and and the more recent studies have kind of kind of uh, found more positive effects nostalgia than you might than you might imagine. Um, it's, it's very useful for groups, um, in, in the kind of creation and maintenance of their collective identity. Um, and they do that as is indicated primarily through the creation of stories and it, it can help them. These, these stories can help them, um, to understand their, their present circumstances, uh, it can give self-esteem to the group of, of sort of shared experiences and, uh, provide a kind of defense uh, against perceived threats to that identity. Um, now that can take a negative turn where nostalgia can be used, um, to produce psychodynamic defenses against perceived threats to the group identity, changes on the horizon. People sink into kind of a defensive position of longing for the, they longing for the past and what, what they're missing. And that can lead to, you know, denial, uh, and it's all kind of an attempt to shield themselves from the sort of frightening possibilities of the future. Um, I'll say a little bit more about nostalgia and, and the definition there. Um, as I said, it's a, it's a much more recent concept. It's maybe only 20 years old. Um, and as I said, 
this longing for this bright, promising future. Um, it is typically uh, involves kind of directive change in the abandonment of the past. Um, also typically led by the sort of managerial class in the organization. Um, but as I say, it's, it's uh, like nostalgia, that's obviously about dissatisfactions with the present and trying to try to deal with present challenges. A part of your chapter relates to uh, um, a case study uh, that that you put through that that comes out with a series of findings related to purpose and role, leadership, community, rituals, intimacy, e even something known as anti-nostalgia. Yeah. inspiration, belonging, fear of elements. There are so many aspects of this. Can you tell us more about the case study that you completed? Sure. Um, my study involved uh, conversations with about 35 participants who were um, mostly current employees and a handful of employees um, who had left the organization. And um, they, they broadly fell into four groups, which I... I call seniors. Those would be the senior leaders and senior officers of the organization. The junior officers were kind of younger, typically, and less authority. Uh, the broad population of the organization I call staffers. And then these uh, figures called ghosts. And these were these former members of the organization. And um, in the this whole group of 35, the tenure of these of this group ranged from people who had been in the in the in the organization two years to more than forty years, um, and I say, I, you know, I think I discovered in a way that asking about nostalgia and nostalgia really proved to be a, a kind of a unique value more than I anticipated. Um, the questions themselves. Uh, slightly removed people from their day-to-day -day concerns about work and there was a, a bit of a dream dream state they were put into where they were allowed to kind of tap into their fantasies um, and that was proved to be really really interesting um, these conversations ended up uh, with revealing about 10 different sort of streams of emotion, seven of which were this involved nostalgia, three about postalgia. One theme was uh, was purpose, the purpose of the organization. And in in this organization, that primarily boiled down to uh, service to others was the purpose of the organization. And uh, every every one of my cohorts spoke about the centrality of purpose and service. Um, typically felt in the wake of crises, um, you know, the Federal Reserve seems like once a decade, you know, certainly 2008, 2009, the financial crisis, more recently, the pandemic gets into this crisis mode. And those tend to be where people feel most engaged, that they really feel the mission and that everybody's part of the same team and there's an urgency to the work. Another form of nostalgia that came through very very strongly was about leadership um amazingly to me the discussion about uh leadership and leaders focused on a leader a former ceo who actually had been out of the organization 25 years and people particularly obviously the senior people 
were still, he, he was still cited as the ideal leader in their head and the carrier of the torch of the, of the organization's values. And I just thought that was a, extraordinary of these, just the residue of these, of these people, even though they were gone. Kind of in, and, 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 and one thing that they, they called him, they, they said that he would, he really loved the organization. He believed it was a special place and he fostered a family environment. And that led, leads me to another stream, uh, which I found was people's notion of community within the organization. And it, for most of the people, the place used to feel more like a family. And somewhere around the turn of the century, 2001, two or three, things kind of began to shift. And, um, and that sense of family became less and less evident and more attenuated. Um, and one participant said, you know, really, in his view, there was a shift from people whose primary motive was service to others and kind of a shift more towards their own self-interest. Um, and as you said, I, I did find this final stream of anti-nostalgia. Um, this was most felt by the the staffers, the more junior people, and and the kind of new, fresh hires. Um, and they felt that there was too much nostalgia in the organization, and that it had a it functioned to shut down debate, or create a false sense of security. You know, people typically referring to the well. You've got a question about X, Y, or Z. Well, this is how we've always done it. Kind of end of conversation. Um, and that also kind of led to undue confidence in how we might deal with a future situation. You know, well, in the past, we've dealt with all these crises and came out okay. And so you, you're worried about, I don't know, crypto meltdown? Yeah, we'll deal with it. Yeah. It's powerful reactions uh, that you describe, and you know, and having worked myself within the change and the, within the lean community for about twenty years, I, I can certainly recognize some of those uh, comments, as you say, almost like gatekeepers. You know, we have tried it, or this is how we used to to do it, or you know, the founder used to say or or, or do things in, in in a certain way. And you also describe, you know, several very powerful psychodynamic forces at work, such as you know, splitting and, you know, idealizing crisis. And, and I certainly can remember one organization where I was, I was working for where, you know, it was not so much whether or not there was going to be a crisis. It was more about which one, you know, yeah. so the, the organization was set up for crisis because it basically gave a focus for the organization, you know, sure there is operations and all these things, but remember the next crisis is just around the corner, you know, how do how does the the individual uh, you know maybe not not only the juniors but but how does the organization as a whole navigate within those very powerful and and sometimes invisible forces uh, in in a working place? Yeah, well, I I think what's important to remember is that uh, as I mentioned, both nostalgia and nostalgia uh, involves the generation of uh, idealized views, and again. Talk about crises. Another example, like the idealization, involves the view of crises in the organization. That that then turns into stories, which are kind of endlessly repeated within the organization, 
uh, to bolster its self-esteem. Um, but the danger of chosen glory is that it doesn't tell the, the full story of the crisis. Um, for example, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't ever focus on how the organization itself may have contributed to the crisis rather than its sort of glorious resolution of the crisis. A third uh, that came through, uh, particularly in the nostalgic discussions, was a general anxiety, um, I, I would say a lack of psychological safety, feeling that there, there was not safety to speak up, to learn, to make mistakes without fear of kind of being silenced or even in extreme cases sort of rep rep reprisals. So that is also something I think is kind of unspoken and people maybe aren't aware of as much of. Um, interestingly, I think post-pandemic, psychological safety is all, all over the discussion in terms of organizations and groups. If you would have referred to psychological safety five years ago, people in your organization would have rolled their eyes. And now, particularly virtually, it's a more of an issue than ever uh, because how things get done around here is so unclear and everything's done virtually and there are no accidental interactions. Uh, in some cases, I think the virtual atmosphere has made it, um, has created safety for some people. It literally in the sense that we're all this, in the same size box on the screen. There's the hierarchy and who has more power isn't evident. Um, but I think it's also, there get some reports of people feeling even more inhibited because of the kind of structured, uh, formalized way of communicating. You know, you only have so and so much time. You yeah. don't have, you know, if you want to say something, you only have, you know, five minutes left at this meeting. You yeah. don't have the, the walk to the cafeteria. You don't have the ride, uh, the walk from the parking lot or the talk on the train or, you know, you, you really only have that. And I think, you know, I, I think we still, uh, you know, need to see the, the long-term uh, effects of this. And I was just recently in a, in an office in, uh, well, Somerset, uh, New Jersey, not uh, far from where you are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, um, uh, a company uh, where, you know, has a massive building, probably room for, let's say, a thousand people. And besides operations, there were maybe only two or three persons working on each floor. Yeah. And then people come in just a couple of days a month. And then, you know, we wonder why we don't really know each other anymore. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people can get, uh, you know, married and, and divorced and, and some die and some become parents uh, <laughs> in those months. You know, it's it's a long time. So um, I think the really good thing is that that there is a genuine interest in actually getting to know people again and yes. getting to getting really to know people instead of just saying, oh, it's just John, he's just a colleague. So I think that, you know, that that you can certainly opt opt in if, if you want to. At the same time, I think it makes it uh, easier, quote unquote, for people to to switch jobs because you're not really that maybe that connected to the company values. How are you going to learn company values in a in, in a in a two dimensional world? You know, uh, you know what's the well, you know the reference to this? What's the smell of the place? Right, that's really difficult to find if it's if if it's just uh, online. I, I think we really need to see the some of, some of the longer term uh, effects on this and. I don't think it has anything to do with the great resignation and all that. I think it's it's more about that we think we can we can structure and and, and process our, our ourselves into 
efficiency, but we actually lose uh, the human touch. And that's why I, I asked this a little bit provoking question in the beginning. I sort of get this picture of these these old timers, you know, sitting on on, on the porch, you know, uh, thinking back to the to the good old days. And I was just wondering, and I said a bit uh, tongue in cheek, whether whether things were were really better in the, in the old days. And at the same time, one of the things that really surprised me is that it's actually juniors, not seniors, that exhibits this most intense nostalgia, you know, this longing. And I think, in a sense, maybe it's not that surprising, but in a sense, it can also be, you know, those are people that are hopeful for the future. They, they, they have a huge impact on how things come to be, right? So they are very active. They're very outward reacting. They they want to, they have an opportunity to create their own life. That's positive, right? Oh, absolutely. And and yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, it actually wasn't much of a surprise to me that, that they were the most nostalgic group because um, they've got their whole careers ahead of them. They are younger. They're, they're just more attuned to uh, everything in the outside world that's, that's, that's going on. And they have a greater anxiety that the organization is going to, going to become somehow irrelevant um, through new technologies or, or, or whatever it is. So yeah, that, 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 that group is, is, is particularly alive to the possibility of positive change. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the ghosts. Um, yeah. who, who are they? What role do they have in the organization? And, and are there some particular characteristics of the ghosts story, not the ghost story, yeah. but the ghosts story stories, yeah. sorry. Yeah. And, and as I say, the, the ghost, uh, um, surfaced really unexpectedly during the conversations. They were not on my list of people to interview. Um, but they kept coming up. Uh, there were, you know, four or five names that people kept citing as examples of great leaders they had learned from and who they would like to emulate. And they turned out to be a really rich source of information, both about nostalgia and nostalgia, but even more so about change. So I ended up writing about four different ghosts who had all been out of the organization a number of years. Um, they were had been all of them very senior leaders. But because they had been out of the organization, they had had time to kind of settle with their past, um, integrate it into their future, and all of them, you know, pursued the next chapter of their careers. And I think um, in talking to them, I sort of, I did detect these elements of, uh, of, of painful learning and adaptation over time uh, involves involving both, both kind of a letting go of your past, but finding ways to build upon it. Their feelings to me were even deeper than nostalgia and nostalgia because in that process, they had to discover what things really mattered to them, their own values over time and what they were gonna take forward into the future. And so they had, I think, demonstrated a certain kind of um, psychological posture towards change that I found just really fascinating. And I, I often think if I did a sequel to my chapter, I would just do nothing but talk to ghosts. Because <laughs> uh, I, think, I think those lessons apply both to organizations and to us as individuals. That 
figuring out what essentially do you care about. Yeah. James, you closed the chapter with advice on how to work with nostalgia and nostalgia in your own organization. Would you mind sharing uh, some of your advice with the listeners? Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I think for anybody or any organization uh, trying to simulate this kind of exercise, I think first you you start out, you know, as I did, you interview a, a broad cross-section of employees uh, and leaders in the organization. Um, I think it's good to ask a small number of very open-ended questions. Two is ideal. Uh, you want to avoid sort of directing respondents of a, or participants towards certain certain responses and and get them into a mode of of deeper reflection. Once you've collected all your data, then you look. For, in my case, you look for the kind of major nostalgic or nostalgic themes that emerge, and then finally you try to find a way to bring them all together to create as complete a picture emotionally the organization as you can and maybe two final suggestions um i think it's uh to emphasize again you've got to create a space of psychological safety um in this in this interview process it's it's really essential for people to be able to express their thoughts and their emotions and uh, you know advice for an individual um if you're performing this exercise on yourself asking yourself what am I nostalgic about or nostalgic about? What you, you've got to try to do is suspend your own self-judgment in that process. What's most important is to very clearly understand your own feelings, your, your longings and your desires in life uh, before rendering any judgments or taking any actions. So that's my advice. Thank you, James. And there you also uh, answered my my last question, which is uh, how can this be applied in other organizations? And and you just said that it can be applied on on individuals. Uh, we can uh, uh, we can think about uh, you know our own nostalgic and 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 nostalgic thoughts, feelings, and ideas. But it it can actually also be applied in in other organizations. What has been the response and feedback to uh, to your findings? Have you shared it with other organizations? Um, I haven't shared it with other other organizations, uh, except I guess now through the book. But I think uh, sharing it within my own organization, it, it had an impact. I think it was embraced by the most senior leadership when they when they read it, and it it helped explained particularly to uh, newer new hires, particularly senior leaders who are new hires, it kind of helped explain the place to them. What what makes this place tick? I, I keep running up against this wall here or there. What is that about, really? And I'm how how what really motivates the people here? So it, I think, uh, you know, it, I, it, I think it was of some actual practical use, which was, uh, which, which was satisfying. But I, 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 I did also share it with uh, a variety of, of personal friends. Um, one is a, a chief administrator of a synagogue. One leads an art advisory business. Um, and, and they, they instantly recognized and they, you know, began asking themselves, 
oh, in my organization, what are people nostalgic about and how is that maybe holding us back? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I'm, I'm uh, hopeful that it uh, can have greater influence. Great. James, thank you so much for the interview today. I look forward to uh, connecting with uh, your other co-authors and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you for today. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Transformations. I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your time and stay tuned for a new episode of Transformations. More episodes on the way.